13,000 years ago, the Americas were a much different place. Tusk-bearing goliaths and ferocious beasts roamed the land. This cold world was ruled by tooth and claw. However, a new predator armed with stick and stone appeared. They would adapt to the many challenges of the new world and create new, deadly technology. Their ingenuity would allow them to spread rapidly and conquer the lands. But their time was short-lived. Their world was changing, and the golden age of the Clovis would end as quickly as it began. Now, thousands of years later, we are left with many questions regarding the settlement of the Americas and the great cultures that once flourished. To understand the significance of the Clovis culture, we must first gain an understanding of the initial settlement of the Americas. It was once thought that the Clovis people were the first people to have entered the continent a little over 13,000 years ago. This was due to the lack of sites that predated Clovis, along with the fact that Clovis technology was the obvious predecessor to later technology in the Americas. This hypothesis was dominant throughout the second half of the 20th century. However, the discovery of multiple sites predating Clovis by hundreds or even thousands of years have changed the scientific consensus. There are sites in the Americas that may date to over 30,000 years, though they remain quite controversial. The Pedro Ferrada sites of Brazil have yielded artifacts and evidence of fire that date to between 48 and 32,000 years ago. Though the remains of fire may have occurred naturally and the artifacts are so primitive that they are likely just rocks that broke from falling or even broken by capuchin monkeys. The topper site of South Carolina preserves Clovis artifacts, but underneath them are artifacts that some claim to be as much as 50,000 years old. Here artifacts are once again extremely primitive, and most believe they are not artifacts at all, just naturally occurring rocks. Another site that was just recently published contains the remains of mammoths which may have been butchered 37,000 years ago. However, once again, remains are uncompelling and the bone may have just been broken by natural processes. The oldest compelling evidence of humans in the Americas would be the footprints preserved at White Sands National Park in New Mexico. Here there are human footprints dating to between 21 and 23,000 years ago. The state is not incredibly surprising considering we have discovered a number of pre-Clovis sites dating between 15 to 20,000 years ago. It remains unknown how long humans have been in the Americas. Though there are earlier, highly controversial sites, the evidence is quite poor. Genetics of modern Native Americans tells us quite clearly that their ancestors diverged from the Inuit around 17,000 years ago. Then between 16 and 13,000 years ago, their population grew enormously, about 60-fold. This population boom is indicative of expansion into new territories. The genetics of New World dogs also suggests that they rapidly diversified during this time. Genetics therefore prove that the Americas did not become extensively inhabited until this wave of people moved in. There may have already been some people in the Americas before them, but they left very little behind archaeologically and nothing genetically. Genetics also tell us that these people moved throughout the continent very rapidly. 
The oldest human DNA to be sequenced in the Americas comes from the two-year-old Anzic I of Montana at around 12,600 years old. 6,000 miles south in Brazil, the remains of people from the Lagoa Santa site were shown to be very closely related to Anzic I. This original migration quickly spread across the Americas, dominating all sorts of environments. There are multiple theories on how people originally arrived in the Americas. The dominant theory is that migrations of people from Northeast Asia crossed down the Bering Land Bridge and then crossed down into the Americas. Many seem to picture Beringia as a narrow passageway, but in reality, this land was twice the size of Texas. People may have lived here for thousands of years before migrating into the Americas. Unfortunately, many sites are now likely covered in hundreds of feet of water. This complicates our understanding of the passage throughout these lands further. Ancient Beringians would not be able to have just walked into the Americas during the last glacial maximum. There were large glaciers covering most of modern-day Canada that would have been impassable. This opens the door to two other theories. The coastal migration hypothesis and the interior route hypothesis. The interior route hypothesis posits a migration along an ice-free corridor between the Laurentide and Cordilleran ice sheets. The problem with this hypothesis is that the interior route may have been sunk beneath a massive lake and the corridor in general may have been devoid of resources. Another problem is that the corridor is only thought to have opened up after people were already living in South America. Still, new migrants possibly came later through this corridor, though evidence is largely in favor of people expanding back into Alaska after this corridor opened up. The coastal migration hypothesis, on the other hand, has been gaining traction recently. The coast may have been relatively free of ice and able to be walked along, or watercraft may have been used. Watercraft is certainly possible from this time period, and later Paleo-Indians are known to have possessed this technology. The coast could have been crossed multiple times throughout the last glacial maximum, which could explain how humans got into the Americas over 20,000 years ago. It would also explain how the first significant wave of people in the Americas was able to spread to South America so quickly. These people traveling along the coast could camp, some moved inland, while others continued south. One can only imagine the sights these people saw along their way. All the beauty of the Americas without obstruction. They witnessed new and unfamiliar beasts of legendary size and power. And despite encountering some of the most fearsome animals since the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs, they thrived. Genetics directly tell us that these people increased their population exponentially in the land of opportunity. The coastal migration theory is currently the best explanation for the peopling of the Americas. Over the last decade, stacking evidence continues to support it. There are other ideas such as the Solutrean Hypothesis which posits that humans from Western Europe migrated over Atlantic ice to reach the Americas. However, genetic and linguistic evidence strongly suggests Native Americans are purely the descendants of Northeast Asians. DNA from the Anzic boy have confirmed that the Clovis people and Paleo-Indians in general descend from Northeast Asia. The DNA also proved that these people were the direct ancestors of roughly 80% of all living Native Americans in North and South America. 
the remainder are thought to have descended from later waves of migration. A question yet to be answered is, where did the actual Clovis culture come from? The first people to enter the Americas were likely not making fluted points or other recognizably Clovis material culture. This is likely because it is not thought that the Clovis culture formed until around 13,500 years ago. The Clovis culture appeared rather abruptly throughout much of North America. This made sense under the Clovis first model, but with the discovery of pre-Clovis sites, their origin has become more enigmatic. A Clovis site typically needs to have a Clovis point present to be confidently considered Clovis, though their technology can be identified in other ways. We will talk about this technology later, but it is important to note that this technology seems to have developed within the North American continent. Clovis sites are primarily known from the Great Plains and the East Coast. Western sites do exist, but in the West, another type of point was also being made. These were the Western stemmed points. These points are much different than the Clovis points and are thought to slightly predate them. Researchers believe that there is a common ancestor between these points. Yes, just like human evolution, technological evolution follows many of the same principles. These common ancestor tools were likely stem projectiles a tool that can be linked back to Eurasia. Clovis points likely evolved from these tools in the southern Great Plains while the western stem tradition evolved in the west. A site in Texas may actually preserve the remains of the ancestor of Clovis technology. At the Deborah L. Friedkin site of Texas, more than 16,000 artifacts have been found dating between 15,500 and 13,200 years ago. These were likely some of the first people in the region. Amidst these artifacts were tools that the Clovis tools could have evolved from. Some have gone as far to say that the tools should be classified as Clovis tools. Considering some of the oldest Clovis sites are thought to be from this region, it seems that the Clovis culture appeared somewhere in the Great Plains, east of the Rockies. Another mystery associated with their origins is how they spread somewhat ubiquitously across the United States and Mexico over such a short period of time. Clovis sites date between 13,400 and 12,750 years ago, though most researchers believe the culture really only lasts for around 400 years. This is a relatively short time archaeologically and it is peculiar how such a culture spread so fast, flourished, and then vanished. The Clovis may have not necessarily been a unified culture, but just a technology. Some propose that this superior technology spread across much of North America to other populations. Others believed that the Clovis were indeed a unified culture that maintained some connection with populations in distant lands. Whatever the case, they used the same technology. The Clovis point is a hallmark of the Clovis toolkit. Clovis points are expertly made fluted points. They have been found in association with mammoths, mastodon, gompothere, bison antiquus, and more. Many of these points have been found in a manner that suggests they were responsible for the death of these animals. Regionally they vary in shape, but in general they are long and lanceolate. They also vary quite widely in shape. They are typically made quite large between 4 to 5 inches long. 
Smaller examples only a little over an inch have been found, while very large examples exist, such as the roots Clovis, which is over 9 inches long. Some Clovis points started fairly large and were retouched throughout their lifespan. They are created with bifacial percussion and finished with pressure flaking. Distinct flutes were attempted to be made on both sides, though sometimes only one side was able to be fluted. Fluting the point was a very dangerous process. Many points actually break during fluting. Though the Clovis people were willing to risk breaking a nearly finished point just for these flutes. That is because the flutes aided in hafting and increased the longevity of the point. Thomas et al. 2017 found that fluted points possess structural advantages as opposed to unfluted ones. The thinner base of the point acted as a shock absorber when the point encountered stress. They found that this design would have significantly extended the life of the point. This would have been very useful for the Clovis people who are known to be nomadic and source their stone from sometimes hundreds of kilometers away. Flutes in general would have provided a flusher transition from the point to the haft. The base of Clovis points were ground down and made dull which tells us some sort of cordage was being wrapped around them. This allows us to reconstruct what these tools may have looked like with some accuracy. The size of Clovis points varied widely. Larger examples may represent knives and thrusting spears, while smaller examples were likely throwing spears or atlatl dart tips. Bone and ivory hooks as well as shaft straighteners have been found at Clovis sites suggesting they did have this technology. Atlatls or spear throwers allow hunters to throw projectiles faster and farther than hand-thrown spears. This technology would have been very helpful for targeting megafauna. Not only did it provide more power, but also allowed them to stay a safe distance away from their prey. Atlatl darts can be thrown much faster than spears. This gives fast-moving prey a shorter time to react. There has long been speculation that the points were hafted in removable foreshafts. These foreshafts would have been socketed or scarf-jointed onto the tip of a spear or dart shaft. Foreshafts may have been used for a variety of reasons. A dense and durable wood could have been used to firmly hold the point and increase the mass of the tip. The shaft could have been made of a lighter wood. Foreshafts could have been changed out of the same darts depending on the prey that was being targeted. A foreshaft also protects the main shaft or dart. People often forget that shaping a wooden spear or dart with a stone tool is very labor intensive. When an animal is speared, it is not uncommon that the shaft of the spear breaks in two. If the main shaft can fall out, then another foreshaft can be placed onto the tip before being thrown again. Another benefit is that the foreshaft can be used separately as a butchering tool. With a long spear it is nearly impossible to actually butcher an animal, but a removable foreshaft could have doubled as a weapon and a tool, perhaps the multi-tool of its day. Post-Clovis era points were hafted to foreshafts, though we do not have direct evidence that the Clovis people used this system. Possible evidence for this system may come from the strange bone rods that we find at Clovis sites. These so-called bi-beveled bone rods could have been used for a number of things. One idea is that they were flint-napping tools for fluting points. However, they have not been found in association with other flint-napping tools and Clovis points can be made without them. 
Another idea is that they were used as sled shoes. Bone and ivory sled shoes have been used by the Inuit for thousands of years. The Clovis bone rods do not show the wear expected to be seen on sled shoes and they are found in southern regions such as Florida that would have not had significant snow during this time. They may have been used as wedges to pry open flesh when butchering game. Perhaps the most likely idea is that they were used as bone foreshafts or hafted wedges. Bone is often used as a composite material in foreshafts because of its durability. The bone rods are sometimes found directly near points at mammoth sites which may suggest that they were part of a composite system. The rods also have a scored and slanted surface that may have attached to a spear with a scarf joint. The harpoons made by the Thule people often utilized multiple layers of bone in tandem with stone projectile points. Their points often use scarf joints. It is possible that this is indeed what these bones were used for, though we cannot say for sure. Another amazing aspect about these bone rods is that they may have a connection to the old world. At the Yana site in Siberia, 27,000-year-old beveled bone rods have been found. The rods bear a striking resemblance to the Clovis rods. Interestingly, these rods are also found at a pre-Clovis site in Alaska dating to between 13,600 and 13,300 years ago. These two rods are the earliest evidence of osseous rod technology in the Americas. They may be an important piece in connecting Northeast Asians to the Clovis people, though the vast temporal difference between the Yana and the New World sites make this unclear. The Clovis people had many tools in their toolkit. Besides points, they often carried with them bifaces, scrapers, blades, burins, flakes, cobbles, and osseous tools. Since we know that the Clovis people were very mobile, it is not surprising that their sites contained many bifaces. Bifaces can be used as a cutting tool that can be sharpened with ease. They can also be turned into a variety of tools including fluted points, and their flakes can also be used. They maximize the number of tools while minimizing the stone carried. A necessity for a highly mobile people. Clovis sites also contain blade core technology. Blades are flakes that are twice as long as they are wide. They are very useful cutting tools and can be broken into smaller pieces to make composite tools. Blade technology is commonly found in Western Eurasia during this time, which some suggest link the Clovis back to Western Europe. Though it is perfectly reasonable that the Clovis could have inherited this technology from Eastern Eurasia or come up with it on their own. Regardless, the presence of this technology is another testament to their flint-napping ability. The presence of gravers, spokeshaves, scrapers, and burns suggests that they often manufactured wood and bone tools. No wooden Clovis artifacts have been found yet. Bone and ivory tools have been found, but we can assume that the vast majority of them have disintegrated. Bone spear points associated with Clovis points have been found at a few sites, notably Sheridan Cave in Ohio. Here, what appears to be a bone point was found near a peccary scapula with a round hole. It is thought that the bone spear point may have brought this animal down by a Clovis hunter. The cave also preserves a stone Clovis point and the remains of a short-faced bear, stag moose, and giant beaver. It is chilling to think that the Clovis people would have encountered such a terrifying animal. 
The bone spear points here are long with a slanted joint that would have presumably connected to a larger spear. It is unclear why Clovis hunters would have chosen bone over stone or vice versa. Both systems were likely used for different game animals and situations. Another tool found at Clovis sites are bone or antler shaft wrenches. These tools were likely used to straighten the shafts of thrown spears or darts. They certainly provide evidence of atlatl use. The last important bone technology they had were needles. Fine bone needles with punched eye holes have been found at various Clovis sites. The needles would have allowed the Clovis people to create tight-fitting clothing to survive the harsh Ice Age winters. Now that we have learned about Clovis origins and technology, we must ask, what was life like for these people? The appearance of Clovis technology is directly associated with the exploitation of large megafauna. Animals such as mammoth, mastodon, bison, and gompathir were all targeted by these people. Seventeen firmly identified Clovis sites have been found where megafauna were killed. Twelve of these sites preserve mammoth, one mastodon, one gompathir, and six included bison, four included camel, and four included horses. These sites typically tend to be located in wetland environments. This suggests that they may have been targeting these animals in this environment to limit their movement. They also may have just hunted at these sites because animals often frequent bodies of water. Across these sites, the patterns of butchery marks and presence of Clovis points support the idea that these animals were actively hunted. Six of these kill sites were campsites used likely after the kill. These camps appear to have been very short-term and specialized, primarily focused on butchery. The nature of these sites do support the idea that they were specialized megafauna hunters, but in particular, proboscidean hunters. Killing an animal such as a mammoth, mastodon, or gompathir would have been a considerable challenge. The Clovis hunted both the woolly mammoth and the Colombian mammoth. Woolly mammoths were around the same size as modern African elephants, while the Colombian mammoths were much bigger. The Colombian mammoth was one of the largest species of proboscidean. They could reach 4 meters or 13 feet tall at the shoulder and weigh up to 10 tons. That is nearly twice as heavy as a male African elephant. Some people seem to think that it would be impossible to bring these animals down in prehistoric times. However, Studies on contemporary indigenous populations in Africa hunting elephant with spear have proven it is possible. Others have still remained more skeptical about the topic. Aaron et al. 21 found in an experiment on atlatl launch Clovis points that they did not penetrate far enough to have been dependable and predictable means of killing proboscideans. They also found that only 16% of Clovis points exhibited impact scars at mammoth sites. The authors do note that some Clovis points are found in a setting that would have restricted the movement of these animals. This would have allowed hunters to deliver controlled stabs that would not necessarily be evident in impact scars. Other researchers have strongly disagreed with this paper and many still believe that the Clovis people relied on hunting mammoth. Researchers generally agree that the Clovis people could have killed the mammoth, but they disagree that Clovis points would have been a dependable and predictable means of getting the job done. Even if the Clovis did not actively hunt mammoth often, their lives were certainly tied to these animals. Unfortunately, 
we have only sequenced DNA from one Clovis person, but this person ate mammoth. Analysis of isotopes in the bones of ANZIC-1 suggests a diet of mammoth and other animals, but not bison. This is further evidence that mammoth was being consumed, but we can't say for sure if it was hunted. Another question to ask would be, why go through all the trouble of killing such a big animal? Mammoth and Mastodon would have provided not only an enormous amount of meat, but also many raw materials. Their hides were quite thick and covered in dense hair in the case of the woolly mammoth. They could have used them for leather, cordage, clothing, shelter, and more. Mammoth bone and ivory was also valued as a material for tools. Mammoth long bones are very dense, and ivory is a great material to work with. We know that they used it for their beveled bone rods, but many other tools may have been made. The Clovis people did eat smaller animals such as peccaries, though the remains are few and far between. This may be due to preservation bias due to the fact that many known Clovis sites appear to be camps made around dead mammoths. These camps would have been mainly focused on butchering the mammoth and do not necessarily reflect the entire diet of the Clovis people. Animals not known from their sites but may have also been hunted include giant ground sloths, glyptodonts, giant beavers, stag moose, and various other deer species. Evidence of plant consumption at Clovis sites exists, but it remains unknown how often they would have been consumed. Another significant factor of megafauna hunting and scavenging is the adversaries it attracts. Late Pleistocene North America was undoubtedly a competitive world. A successful mammoth kill may mean a night without sleep fighting off carnivores. Some have suggested that the presence of Clovis points at mammoth kill sites could have been the result of repelling competition. Bears, cats, and wolves all would have been formidable. The giant short-faced bear seems to have been one of the largest carnivorous animals to ever live in North America. They stood 8 to 10 feet tall and on average weighed 1,650 pounds. However, exceptionally large individuals may have weighed over 2,200 pounds. Alongside it lived some of the largest known felids. Smilodon populator, the largest species of saber-toothed cat, weighed nearly a thousand pounds. Two other smaller but formidable species of Smilodon also lived in North America. Other predators included the American lion, wolves, dire wolves, various species of bear, the American cheetah, and other smaller animals. It is frightening to know that these people would have actually had to encounter these animals armed with stick and stone. The success of these people in the face of such stiff competition is certainly a display of their success. One of the questions commonly asked about the Clovis culture is if they were part of a unified culture. Scholars generally believe they were. The similar use of exotic toolstone, general technology, use of red ochre, and focus on proboscidians suggests a relatively unified culture. A seemingly important aspect of Clovis culture were their caches. A cache is a collection of artifacts that are typically intentionally buried. 25 Clovis caches have been found. The size and content of these caches vary widely. The smallest Clovis cache contained only 5 artifacts, while the largest one contained 165. Only 7 of these caches actually contain Clovis points. 
The others have been identified as Clovis based on other technological factors. One of these caches, the East Wenatchee Cache, contained bi-beveled bone rods. The purpose of these caches is unknown, but they are commonly believed to have had something to do with Clovis' spiritual beliefs. Some have argued that these caches were buried on the landscape to be used as tools later. However, most of these caches do not contain an abundance of raw material or preforms that would suggest stockpiling. Both the East Wenatchee and Simon caches were buried with some connection to volcanic events. They were also buried in volcanic tephra. Perhaps these caches were a spiritual offering to the earth. The aforementioned Anzic boy could give us a further clue about their spiritual beliefs. The boy unfortunately passed away at just the age of two. His people buried him in a rock shelter along with some 120 Clovis artifacts. They covered his body in red ochre and left him Clovis points, bone rods, scrapers, and unfinished cores so perhaps he could make new tools in the afterlife. These tools would have been very valuable to these people, but they felt the need to leave them behind with their lost child. His burial brings up larger questions about Clovis' burial. Were adults buried or only kids? Our unfortunate lack of evidence leaves this question unanswered. This burial could have been a one-off kind of thing. Anzic One is still currently our only skeletal evidence of a Clovis person, but he has told us so much about these mysterious people. One of the most mysterious aspects about the Clovis culture is its disappearance. Suddenly, around 12,750 years ago, the Clovis culture would disappear. This directly coincides with the Younger Dryas and the extinction of the Mammoth and over a dozen other megafauna species. The Clovis people did not die out, but seemed to have evolved into different technological traditions such as the Folsom. It is not too surprising that such a widespread culture would eventually splinter off into subcultures, though their sudden disappearance is interesting. The Younger Dryas Cold Phase was a fairly sudden cold shock that lasted roughly 1500 years. The event appears to have been triggered by the draining of Lake Agassiz into the North Atlantic. Lake Agassiz was a massive lake of glacial meltwater that was larger than all of the Great Lakes combined. When it drained into the Atlantic, it is thought that it disrupted the thermohaline circulation. It may have emptied in one or more floods, or it also could have drained slowly over hundreds of years. Whatever the case, it plunged the world into a cold shock. The Younger Dryas impact hypothesis proposes that a large comet initiated the draining of this lake. This hypothesis is highly controversial and much of the evidence has shown to be unreplicatable. Regardless of what caused the cold shock, we know what happened it still does not necessarily explain the extinction of the megafauna. In Paul Martin's book, The Twilight of the Mammoths, he wrote, The woolly mammoth occupied northern Eurasia and northern North America. The Columbian mammoth's range was transcontinental, from Alaska south throughout most of the United States, and went from an elevation of 9,000 feet in the mountains of Utah to sea level in Florida and Mexico. It seems unlikely that such adaptable animals could have been totally wiped out by even the most severe weather conditions. He rather advocates for the idea of the overkill hypothesis. 
This hypothesis posits that megafauna, particularly in the Americas, went extinct at least partially, if not primarily due to overhunting by humans. Many advocate for the climate change of the Younger Trias being the main culprit, but it continues to remain an open and active debate. This topic is far too detailed to cover in this video, though I advise you to all listen to both sides of the argument as they are both reasonable. It is also possible, if not probable, that both climate and overhunting led to the extinction of much of the megafauna. One connection that I have noticed from my research is that very shortly after the Clovis appeared with their new great spear points, mammoth hunting culture, and population boom, the mammoth went extinct. Nonetheless, correlation is not causation. All we know for sure is that the Clovis culture disappeared alongside many great megafauna species. The culture would live on in the form of many other great Paleo-Indian cultures that would eventually lead to their modern descendants. The Clovis culture is as interesting as it is enigmatic. Their technology and expansion was revolutionary for the time. They expanded throughout the Americas rapidly despite the many challenges they faced. Though we have learned a great deal about their culture, there is undoubtedly much more to learn. Their origin, lifestyle, and effect on the fauna of the Americas remains actively debated. Hopefully future discoveries will shed light on the settlement of the Americas and the subsequent expansion of the Clovis people. Until then, this has been your host North02, and I'll see you on the next one. Arrivederci.